0: Well, again, good morning and and welcome uh, to Christ the King and a happy Easter to all of you. We're going to continue uh, with the past couple weeks. We've been looking at the first uh, chapter of the book of Mark. Last week we talked about uh, preparing for the King, which is what Palm Sunday is all about. And today we're going to talk about receiving the King and how one actually embraces uh, the resurrected Christ so if you have your scriptures with you, open them to Mark chapter 1. And if you don't, there's, uh, the passages are conveniently printed in your bulletin for you, the entire passage. I'm only going to read the first three verses and, uh, and then start with verse 14 and finish the chapter. So we'll start with verses 1 through 3 and then finish with 14 to the end 18. Uh, now hear God's word. In the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the Prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Verse 14, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, Proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Passing alongside the sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea. For they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. A person uh, some of you may be familiar with, perhaps not, Gaius Octavius. Gaius Octavius was born the 23rd of September, 63 AD, or BC, 63 BC, pardon me. He was the great nephew of Julius Caesar. Following the assassination of Julius Caesar on the Ides of March, you all know the story, the 15th of March. Uh, You remember the oracle came and said, beware the Ides of March. And uh, the friends, some of his closest friends came and stabbed uh, uh, Julius Caesar and uh, killed him. And the famous phrase, et tu Brute, my friend, are you also uh, one of the assassins, you also Brutus Uh, With the assassination of Julius Caesar uh, began a time of about 15 years more or less of internal strife within the Roman Empire. The nephew, uh, the great nephew, and the heir of Julius Caesar, Caesar Octavius, began to consolidate power, and uh, there was a power struggle, and you all have watched uh, Richard Burton, I'm sure, and and, uh, Elizabeth Taylor in the movie Cleopatra. Octavius defeated all of the internal strife and Mark Antony and Cleopatra. He defeated them in the naval battle of Actium in the Sea of Ionia uh, some years later, about 15 years after the assassination of Julius Caesar, and he ascended to uh, the throne. He, He was given unlimited power. And what's interesting is Octavius then took that power that the Roman Senate had given them and he humbly handed it back to them and said, here's your power back. I don't want to be Caesar. I don't want to be king. But they would not receive it. And they said, no, we want you to be Caesar. And so they gave it back to him and he began consolidating all of the power from the, that the uh, grateful Roman Senate had given him, and they bestowed upon him this title. This is the title. Augustus. Caesar Augustus, who was Gaius Octavius. Augustus means the revered, the illustrious, the majestic one. Augustus was, uh, according to most scholars, the first and perhaps the greatest of all the Roman emperors. Up until that time, there were a democracy. But this, with Augustus and his ascension to the throne, began the time when they they really instituted a dictatorial uh, rule by an emperor. And he reigned, Augustus, for 33 years. And what's interesting about Augustus is that he ushered in an unparalleled period of world peace that lasted 33 years they call it many of you may know it's called the pax romana and it lasted beyond his own reign there's a famous inscription that they found some years ago on a calendar and perhaps you've heard of this calendar the preen calendar they found this it's dated around 9 bc so it's about Five years prior to Jesus and about in the middle of the reign of Augustus Caesar. I'm going to read you the citation, so be patient, but listen to it. Listen to what was occurring in the culture and in that world. It's fascinating. Here's the inscription on the pre-end calendar, 9 BC, five years before the uh, birth of Jesus. It goes like this. The beginning of the gospel of Augustus Caesar. The beginning of the euangelion. The gospel. Since providence which has ordered all things and is deeply interested in our life. Providence being God. Since providence which has ordered all things and deeply interested in our lives. Has set in most perfect order. By giving us Augustus whom she, God, a female, filled with virtue, that He might benefit humankind, sending Him as a Savior, both for us and for our descendants, that He might end war, arrange all things, and since He is Kaiser, or King, since He is Caesar, by His appearance, excelling all our expectations, He's surpassing all benefactors and not even leaving to posterity any hope of surpassing what He has done since the birth day of the God Augustus was the beginning of euangelion, the gospel for the world that came by reason of Him. Now I hope... What this does is to show you that there was an entire context, a culture in the ancient Near East, they understood what gospel was. They understood what it means. When we think of gospel, especially in modern American Christianity, the first thing that we run to is that Jesus came, He died, He's going to save us from our sins, and we're all going to go to heaven. But it's very interesting as you actually read the four Gospels, when you read the Gospels that are in our Bible, there is no explanation whatsoever as to what a Gospel really is. It's just assumed because everybody understood what a Gospel was. And so, l- let me just give you this and then we'll begin getting into what, what we must do to receive the King. We looked at preparing ourselves for the King. What do we do to receive the King? A Gospel... A gospel is not, listen to what it's not, it is not teaching, although it does contain teaching. Teaching is embedded in the gospel. Uh, it's not instruction. It's not go do this and go do that, although there are some instructions in the gospel. It's not history because they're much, much too short. If you've read them or looked at them, or even if you haven't looked at them, just look at your Bible. I mean, the whole, all four of them just make up a little section about this big. Very short. Very brief. There's no way it's a blow-by-blow account of the life of Jesus and His disciples. It's just not possible. So lots have been left out. It's not a documentary. It's not just telling you kind of what happened along the way for those few years. A gospel is news. It's an announcement. And it's an announcement that has a message. That's where the teaching and all comes from. But it's an an announcement. It's news that has a message about someone like Augustus Caesar who was going to change the face of the world. In other words, whoever he is and whatever this Gospel is about this particular individual, if it's Augustus uh, Caesar or if it was some other great world leader and there were others, by the way. And now Mark and Matthew... And uh, even John in his way and Luke, they all say this is the gospel of Jesus. They all are saying, you know what you understand? They're telling the culture, you know, you understand there's great kings out there. We have a gospel too. We have good news too. We have a king who has come. And so the question becomes, how do you receive the king? Well, this is his message briefly. His message in these first few verses are, first of all, the rule and reign of the king is inaugurated. When, when, when Jesus said the time is fulfilled, he's saying this is the time, the gospel it has been fulfilled. The king has come. Then renewal of all creation. He says the kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, with the coming of the king, all of creation was going to be renewed. Now I know a lot of you are thinking, oh man, maybe he didn't see the 21st century news. Have you looked at how terrible the world is? Yes, we understand that it's terrible. But there's also something here that wasn't there before that has the power and has in fact changed the face of the earth. He says there's going to be a reversal of the curse. The original curse that came on mankind in the Garden of Eden for disobeying God. A reversal. Jesus goes into the wilderness. We didn't read that section, but you can read it later. He goes into the wilderness. He's tempted by Satan. He's with the wild animals. There's a reversal of the curse. Jesus doesn't go into a garden. He goes into the wilderness. But He fights the same serpent. And He conquers him. And then Mark introduces a revolutionary relationship. A revolutionary relationship. This is in the verses we read. 15, 16, 17, and 18. He says, repent. Listen. Repent. Believe the gospel. And then in verse 17 he says, follow me. Repent. Believe the gospel. Follow me. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Those three headings, repent, believe the gospel, follow me. Last week we looked at how do you prepare for the king. And what, what we said last week is God has asked us in the first chapter of Mark, especially and in other places, He said, take an outer look. Look at the world around you. See how broken it is? You see how messed up it is? Take an outer look. Face the reality. The world is a mess. People are a mess. Then He says, take an inner look. Look inside, look in your own heart, and recognize that you indeed are a mess. Some of us go through life thinking, you know, I'm a pretty good person. And we do. We measure ourselves, the Apostle Paul said, we measure ourselves by ourselves. In other words, we compare ourselves with one another. But we dare not lift our eyes up and compare ourselves to Almighty God. We dare not lift our eyes up and compare ourselves to Jesus. And we dare not lift our eyes up and even compare ourselves to some of the great people that have lived in the world a much better life than you have. But we will look around very carefully and try to find somebody that's a little bit worse than us. So I'm not as bad as him. I'm not as bad as her. And that isn't the measure by which we are going to be judged at the end of the day. We're going to be judged according to God's standards, not ours. It's a terribly frightful thing. And so he says, take an inner look. Look inside. Do you see that? What are you going to do about that? And then last week I said the way that you, that you deal with that is by looking to the King. The King who came down. Only the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Of all the religions in the world. I told you over the past few weeks, basically there are only two religions in the world. I know there's thousands, I know. But there are really only two. Because every single religion in the world without exception says here's the way you get to God. Here's how you do it. Live a good life. Keep some moral standards. Keep these rules. Follow these things. Do this, do that. And then if you do them well and you're sincere and you really believe it and you really know you know, then maybe the God, whoever God is, he, she, it, or them, whatever they are, maybe they'll accept you if you've done well enough. But only authentic, historic Christianity. I'm not talking about some of the aberrations of Christianity. I'm talking about historic, authentic Christianity. Only that religion, of all the religions, says Me for you. God says, I will give Myself for you. I will give My Son for you. And that's what we're looking at today. How do you receive the King? Well, let's look at it very quickly here. The first thing He says in verse 15 is repent. He's talking about repentance. He's talking about a life of humility, a life of brokenness, a life of spaciousness. That you don't wear all of your feelings out on your sleeve and touchy about every little thing. Our culture today is one that can be characterized when they write history books in years to come, they're going to say that the end of 20th century and first half of 21st century were an age of moral outrage everybody's outraged about everything including some Christians outraged anger venom hatred racial hatred we thought we did away with it in the sixties it's not gone violence unbelievable violence against innocence and yet at the same time we pat ourselves on the back and, our clothes and say oh, how technically advanced we are and we take selfies. God forbid, God forbid you should lift your eyes from this tiny screen. <laughs> because what you will see will break your heart. Repentance a life of humility, a life of brokenness, looking at ourselves. Jesus says, repent. Do you know those of us that we, we uh, claim to be reformed Christians, we love the Reformation and we love Martin Luther, but I don't know if any of, I don't know if any of us even read, read the 95 Theses that, that Luther nailed up on the wall in Wittenberg. I don't know if anybody's even read them. Do you know what the first one is? Some of you do, but do you know what the very first thesis is? Listen. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Luther is saying that Christian that repentance for the Christian is daily it's a lifestyle. Sometimes it's momentary. It's not something that you do. It's a, a one time. It's a lifelong struggle with who you are. Your sin, the, the sin that so easily, the writer of Hebrews says, so easily it besets us. And so what, what, what Luther is saying is repentance is not some system, listen, of, of sacramental observances where you know you go to the church and you tell the priest or me in fact I'm thinking of doing this because it's a great idea you should have to come to the church and tell me all your sins (laughs) right and we're going to get a little box I'm going to stand on one side of the box you get in the other and there's going to be a drawer between and you're going to tell me your sins and I'm going to tell you what you have to do to get forgiven and then you're going to have to give me some money depending on how much you put in that little drawer and push it to my side, that's how much you get forgiven. Well, we laugh at that, but that's exactly, exactly what Luther was dealing with. The medieval church had turned repentance and the receiving of forgiveness from Almighty God into an economic transaction. And what that says is, you for me... You people, you low people, God is saying, they're giving the message to people, ordinary people like us, you have to pay, you have to do, you have to perform. It's a lifestyle. Repentance is a lifestyle of putting off sin and putting on righteousness. The Apostle Paul said this in Ephesians 4. Listen carefully put off the old man, repent, put him off, and which belongs to the former manner of life, corrupt through deceitful desires, and now he switches. He says, so put off this old man, and put on this new person, this new man. Be renewed, he says, in the spirit of your mind. Change the way you think about sin. Not just bad sin, some sins are good things that we turn into bad things, all right? Put on the new self. In other words, turn towards God. So repentance, listen folks, this will, if you just listen for a few minutes, this can revolutionize your life. When I learned this, my whole Christian life changed because I quit trying to earn God's favor. I can't. He found me in a gutter. And I know He's found many of you in a gutter. Or maybe He's found you not in a gutter of sin. Maybe He's found you in a gutter of self-righteousness. How would you like that? The people Jesus found in the gutter of adultery, He quickly forgave. Hey, you're forgiven. People He found in the gutter of self-righteousness, He was harsh with them. He said, you can't come to Me because your self-righteousness prevents you from coming to Me. You think you're better than everybody else. I tell you this, the prostitutes and the wine-bibbers and the tax collectors will go into heaven before you. Self-righteousness was impossible to forgive. Oh, God can do anything. He can't forgive self-righteousness. And He won't. Repentance is turning away from those things you know are enslaving you and turning towards the one you know has the power to break the chains of slavery. As a pastor, when I talk to people and they tell me all this stuff and then they say the word but... You with me? la di da di da da But I know that everything that they've said before that is just a bunch of baloney. Because now they're going to tell me the really true thing. You know, these people were really bad at me at work and they did this and that to me and my wife left me and my husband cheated on me and, uh, you know, I caught my children using drugs and I, they lied to me and they did this and this. But, well, then you don't care about any of that. Now I'm going to get to hear about what you really care about, you. Isn't that true? I know because that's what I do when I go talk to my counselor. Just after church today, I have a meeting with her. And she's going to prescribe more drugs for me. Because, um, so so you, you understand that self-righteousness will kill us and repentance makes us face our self-righteousness, makes us face our particular sins, makes us face our angers, our weaknesses, whatever it is. And we're to, to recognize them, we're to embrace them. Uh, Steve Brown used to say, kiss the demon on the lips. You know, get, get in there, look at it for real and say, yeah, I get it. And then turn to the one who can fix it. If repentance is one-sided, and look, I know that I'm, I'm probably speaking to half of you, if not more, in this room, because I'm that way too. If you're a Christian lion, is distilled down into you just trying to do away with sin and stop and quit doing this and stop doing that and quit doing this and quit doing that, it, it, Christianity is going to wear you out in about, now, about five, six seconds is about all we can last. We can't last with that kind of burden on us. i got to do this and i got to do this and i got to stop that. No, you have to do what Thomas Chalmers said. When you repent and turn away from your sin, the old Puritan Thomas Chalmers wrote a wonderful sermon called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. I've shared it with many of you. If you, if you, if you have any time this afternoon, I know it's Easter, look it up online, download the PDF, it's free, he's dead, he doesn't have a copyright. And read The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Thomas Chalmers said, you can't just mortify or kill sin. You have to fall in love with something. Something has got to take captive your heart. Something's got to fill you up so much that it drives out the evil. So that when you're sitting there looking at the choices, and you say, this sin or this thing or this thing over here and this thing over here is Jesus, and you've come to know Him in all His beauty and all His glory, and you've seen the blood dripping from His head and from His side and from His hands and from His feet, and you know that it was for you. Not in an abstract sense, but for you. That on the cross He cried out your name. That He bled and died for you. When you know that. When you know that He went into the darkness of a grave. So that you never would have to see the inside of a grave. When you know that. And that becomes part of the fabric and fiber of your life and you see Him growing and growing in beauty and glory and you fall daily more and more in love with Him. It's not one-time thing. It's a whole lifetime. Follow me. It's a whole lifetime, He said. Repentance and faith, believing and embracing. And when you fall, when you fail, when you make the biggest mess you can imagine, everybody will forsake you. He will never forsake you. Do you know that? You turn to Him after I I ran away from Him for 10 years. I wrecked my marriage. I ruined my children. I ran away from Him for 10 years. And when He finally slapped me a couple times and got me back over here and straightened me out, I I mean, who who does that? Who does that? Nobody. Nobody. He does it. And at the end of your life, folks, all of us are going to look down in the casket of our last person, the last person we love. All of us are going to be there one day looking down. That's that's the last person. I'm all that's left. And Jesus says this, in the midst of that pain, in the midst of that grief of being the last, I will never leave you or forsake you. I will be with you to the end of the earth. So, repentance is a way of life. Then he says, believe the gospel, have faith, a life, listen folks, of confidence, of living hope, of robust optimism. It's not going around like this, happy, happy, clappy, clappy Christians with a fake smile planted on their face. That is not what faith is. But faith is being able to weep well, lament well, trusting in Almighty God. In other words, you can weep, you can, you can beat your chest and say, why, oh God, did I get this disease? Why did you take my child? Why is my marriage ruined? Why have I lost my job? You can say all that, you can complain and you can cry out and lament to Him in faith. The difference between Saul and King David, Saul always tried to self-justify himself, but when David was caught in his sin, not just the little one, by the way, adultery and murder, when David was caught, David said, I'm guilty. I'm the man. And he went to God in Psalm 51 and he begged, Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Do you hear the anguish in his voice? Take not your Holy Spirit from me. I've sinned. I've sinned against you. And that's a man. Faith, folks, is only as good as the object in which you place it. If you think faith, faith is a force, and that words are the container of the force, and you can just go and speak things into existence, you're not talking about Christianity. You're talking about something else. Just be honest and go deal with that. But if you understand that faith is not a force. In fact, it's exactly the opposite. Faith is not something you have that you try to muster up in order to connect to God. But that faith is a ceasing, listen, a ceasing from all those things. It is a humble and complete reliance upon God. It's a surrender to God. But as as I've told you all for many, many years, surrender in the Bible is not the bumper sticker theology, let God and let go. That's bumper sticker theology. It's horrible. Surrender in the Bible is not just giving up, throwing your hands up and saying, oh, well, I'll just sit back and let whatever happen. Everybody that you see in Scripture without exception that surrenders to God are making a very positive and aggressive advance and embracing Him and laying hold on Him and saying to Him like Jacob, I won't let you go until you bless me. That's a surrender. That's surrender. That's the Syrophoenician woman at Jesus' feet. And, and, and Jesus says, You know what? Uh, I didn't come here to give uh, uh, food to the dogs. The food is for the children. And the Syrophoenician woman says this She says, Well, I, I'm a dog, but even dogs eat from the crumbs of the Master's table. And Jesus said, Woman, great is your faith. Do you see? That's surrender, laying hold. Not giving up and letting go. My favorite author, one of my favorite authors, Horatius Bonar, I've shared this with you many times, but it's Easter and so I get to share it again. Listen, Bonar says this, The strength or kind of faith is nowhere stated. The Holy Spirit has said nothing as to quantity or quality. Not how much your faith is and not how good it is. Nothing about quantity or quality on which so many dwell and stumble. Faith is simply believing, feeble feeble as our faith may be. Listen, for faith is no work, no merit, no effort, but the cessation from all of these and the acceptance in place of them of what another has done, done completely and forever. His perfection suffices to cover not only that which is imperfect in us, listen, but that which is imperfect in our faith. When we believe on His name. What Bonar's saying is simply this, that when you cease from trying to get your faith to be the power in your life, and you put whatever feeble and weak and paltry even faith, maybe mixed with some doubt, maybe mixed up with some fear, but you lay hold on Jesus, even with just a little tiny uh, finger, you just grab, hold. On. Ah, I don't know if I can. Ah, you know what He does? <clears throat> he comes around and embraces you. The Scripture says, "With cords of love, He binds you." To himself, he's not asking you to have great, huge faith or perfect faith or faith without any kinds of doubt. Everybody has doubts. If you don't have doubts, then I don't know what to say about you. You need help. There's probably medicine for that. Nicholas of Cusa, one of one of these old great old. First millennia, guy said this. Listen, it's beautiful. When all my endeavor is turned towards you, because all your endeavor is turned toward me, when I look unto you alone with all my attention, nor ever turn aside the eyes of my mind, because you enfold me with your constant regard, when I direct my love toward you alone, because you who are love's self has turned your love toward me alone, then... I'm at rest. Do you see? When I put all my endeavor to you, knowing that you have put all your endeavor to me, now that's real faith. So, very quickly, how do you follow me? In verse 17, he goes and he finds Peter, and then, you know, in the story, he finds other people. He says to them in 17, follow me. And it says, immediately they left their nets, which meant they left their past life. They went, it was all or nothing. It's not like, okay, you can fish part-time and follow me. You can have a second job and follow me. He no, I want all of you. Now, I'm not telling you to quit your jobs, otherwise the church will go broke. We need your money. No, I'm kidding. No, that, that, that's not what he's talking about. He's not talking, everybody, you know, give up your jobs and your career and your life and everything and go and run and follow him. He's just saying when he calls us, he calls us to himself and he calls all of us. He doesn't want part of you, he wants you all. To receive the king, all. To receive him, you have to repent. To receive him, you have to believe in Jesus Christ, his son. And to receive him, you have to follow him, to live in obedience. What is the basis then? What is the basis of our repentance? The basis of our obedience? Turning from, turning to. What is the object of our love and faith? Well, I'll give it to you quickly because we're out of time. Listen. In the book of Hebrews, it says this. Catch this. Let this be the thing you think about today along with all of the other distractions and wonderful distractions really of Easter and family and friends. But let this Roll around in the back of your mind. Listen. In the book of Hebrews, the writer said this. When Christ came into the world, He said. This was something Jesus said. These were words on His lips. Sacrifice and offering you've not desired. He's talking to His Father. Sacrifice and offerings you've not, you've not desired but a body you have prepared for me. Sacrifices and offering you've not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, Christ, then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Christianity is saying, repent, believe the gospel, and the gospel is this. A body was prepared for Jesus. It was viciously, cruelly, tortured in ways that we cannot even imagine. If any of you have seen The Passion of the Christ by Mel Gibson, it was worse than that. And that, that movie is filled with gratuitous, horrific violence. I don't necessarily recommend it for you. It was worse than that. A body you have prepared for me. Why? Why? So that Jesus could live a perfect life for us. So that He could step into the theater of this world and do for us what we can't do for ourselves. And then unjustly and unrighteously, criminally condemned, not for His sins, but for ours. And to go to the cross and die so that in the marketplace of savory, He could save you. There's a little anecdote I've shared with you before, but I want to share it again today. Listen, this is not a true story, it's just an anecdote. Abraham Lincoln went to the slave block to buy back a slave girl. A slave girl looked at the tall, homely-looking white man bidding on her. She figured he was just another white man going to buy and then abuse her. Lincoln won the bid. And as he walked away with his property, he said, Young lady, you are free. And she said, what does that mean? He said, it means you're free. Does that mean I can say whatever I want to say? Yes, my dear. You can say whatever you want to say. Does that mean I can be whatever I want to be? Yes, you can be whatever you want to be. Does that mean I can go wherever I want to go? And he says, yes, my dear. You can go wherever you want to go. And she said, then I'll go with you. That's the gospel. Repent. Believe what Jesus Christ has done for you and follow Him. Go with Him. The one that broke those shackles broke those chains. He conquered death by death. Let us pray. Our great God and Father, we love You and thank You for Your kindness and mercy that endures forever. Truly there is no one in heaven above or on the earth beneath like You Who would give Your Son, Your only Son for us. And in so doing, break the chains of bondage so that we can go with You. Thank You. We bless Your holy name. We ask You, Father, now in Christ our Lord to feed us in our hearts by faith as we come to Holy Communion. That we might commune with You and You with us in the power of Your Holy Spirit. Amen.